Have you ever been in a really bad situation that caused you to react and do something you regretted later on? So let's talk about that today. Hey, good morning. Today we're starting a new series called React or Respond. We all have this thing called a hot button. It's something you hear, you see, or you experience that triggers you in a way that, that you can't explain. Now for me, this happened in high school. My teacher stood up from her desk and made a comment about somebody that was in my class. Now that person happened to be a good friend of mine who confided in me a few days ago about his insecurities. And my teacher was making fun of him about that very insecurity and I got so angry, I was so triggered that I stood up and I yelled at the teacher. And for some of you who are like, I can't imagine you doing that, Pastor, let me tell you, I couldn't believe myself. I couldn't believe that I was doing it. I felt like an out-of-body experience. I pointed my finger at her and I made some threats. I walked up to her and pushed her back down into her seat. Now the minute I did it, I had a lot of regrets. And I apologized to her, but it didn't matter because by then, she was sending me to the principal's office. Now around that time in my life, I just started going to church. And so when I shared this story with my friends at church, they brought this verse to me. They said this, Refrain from anger and turn from wrath. Do not fret. It leads only to evil. In another translation, it says, Cool your pipes. It only makes things worse. You see, what we know is that when we face these moments, we actually do one of three things. The first thing is we fight. We take action. We push up against the thing that's threatening us. The second thing we do is flight. We run away from it. We try to save our own skin. And the third one is freeze. We don't know what to do, so we just stand still. In a book by Jonathan Haidt, he takes the time to explain to us what's happening in our brains when we actually are triggered and do something about it. So Haidt tells us that for 250 million years, the brain was designed to just react to certain things so that we could survive. So if something dangerous happens, we just react and we push against it or we run away from it or we just freeze. But as it turns out, 100,000 years ago or so, our brain started to evolve where we're not just reactionary beings anymore. We're also able to rationally respond to things. And as a matter of fact, it's one of the most unique traits of a human being. We're able to respond to certain things rather than just to react. As a way to explain this concept, Haidt gives us an illustration. There is an elephant and then there's a rider of that elephant. The elephant is the reactionary part of our brain and the rider of the elephant is the more reasonable, the more rational part of our brain. So in this illustration, the elephant is the emotional part, the things that we do when we react to things. Whereas the person who's riding the elephant represents the one that's more logical, the one that's more rational. He argues that most people in this world are convinced that the rider, the rational side of us, is the one that's steering the elephant to where it's supposed to go. So for example, let's just say you walk into a Krispy Kreme donut place and you smell the, the goodness of the donuts, they're freshly baked, glazed with, with sugar, and you're thinking, I want one. And that's the elephant part. That's the part that says, I want to walk towards that, that, that glazed donut and buy a few and just devour it right now. But the rider of the elephant is the one that says, no, no, wait, hold on. Uh, you, do you know how unhealthy that is for you? The, the calories is so high for each, each donut. And is it a good use of your money? And so Haidt says, a lot of people think that it's the elephant rider that's in charge. But he actually argues the other way around. He says, more often than not, the elephant goes and gets what it wants, and the right of the elephant is the one that rationalizes it for you. So this doesn't necessarily mean that the more smart you are, the more books you've read, the more control you have over the elephant. On the contrary, the more you know, the better you are at defending at what the elephant's doing in the first place. 
In other words, we're not as rational as we like to think that we are. What he's arguing here is, no matter how evolved you think you are, you are more likely to react to certain things than to respond. And this problem is shared with everybody. As a matter of fact, in the Bible, we see an example of one of the first Christian leaders complaining about this reactionary nature of ours. Romans chapter 7, verse 15 says this, I do not understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do, but what I hate, I do. And if I do what I do not want to do, I agree that the law is good. As it is, it is no longer I myself who do it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that good itself does not dwell in me, that is, in my sinful nature. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. For I do not do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want to do, it is no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. So here he calls it sin. He says, there's something inside of me that makes me do the things I don't want to do, which is completely reactionary. What he wants to be able to do is to respond to certain situations with a clear mind. I mean, we've all been there. And at the time, we had great backups. We had great ways to, to argue why we did what we did was the right thing to do. We had good reason to think that we we're doing the right thing. But now we're like, uh, I have no idea. Why did I do that? Why did I think it was a good idea to begin with? And the answer is, it was because we were reacting to a situation rather than responding. And if you could totally relate to that, I want to say that you're in good company because almost every single character in the Bible has this struggle. So the question I want to wrestle with today and for the rest of the series is, how do we become people who are more responsive than reactionary? So first I want to start off with a story that takes place in 1956 in Montgomery, Alabama. There was a young Baptist minister by the name of Martin Luther King Jr. Just a few days ago, a woman by the name of Rosa Parks refused to give up her seat in a bus. And because of that, the black community in Alabama decided that they're going to do a bus boycott. But they were looking for a leader. Now, all the other ministers in the town knew that it was suicide to be the leader of such a movement. But because Martin Luther King Jr. was, was 26 years old and he didn't know any better, he volunteered himself to become the leader of that movement. On January 27, 1956, King received a call that was threatening in nature. It was the middle of the night, he picked up the phone, and on the other side he heard this, if you and your family don't get out of Alabama in three days, we'll come and destroy you. Now, if you're a black minister in 1956 leading a bus boycott, that is not an idle threat. So King hung up the phone, tried to go back to sleep, but he couldn't. So he got up, went to his kitchen table, poured himself a cup of coffee, and buried his face in his hands. In his own words, King said that he was paralyzed by fear. All he could think about was how he was going to get himself, his wife, and his newborn daughter out of Alabama without losing the respect of his fellow black pastors. And then, like autopilot, he said he found himself praying over his cup of coffee when he heard a voice, an inner voice. And this is what he said that he heard. Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be with you even until the end of the world. Later on, in a sermon that King gave about this very experience, this is what he said. The voice promised never to leave me. Never leave me. Never to leave me alone. No, never alone. He promised to never leave me. Never, never leave me alone. And then he said at that moment, he said that instantaneously, like all that fear just kind of left. It just disappeared. And then he said this. I knew at that moment I could stand up without fear and I could face anything. Three days later, Martin Luther King Jr., he was at his own church 
conducting a meeting about the bus boycott. And all of a sudden, there's a man who ran in through the front door screaming. He was alerting King that his house was on fire. So King picked up his stuff, so he ran out of the church and ran towards his house, which was down the street. He says that as he was getting closer and closer to his house, he saw the black community there trying to put out the fire. He looked behind him and he saw the people who were at his meeting and the congregation following after him to that house. Now, fortunately, his wife and his daughter were pulled out of the house in safety. But when he looked around, he saw a group of angry people. People had rifles and they had baseball bats. They were ready to go on a riot. You see, they were reacting. They wanted to let everybody know that they're not going to put up with this junk anymore. But Dr. King, instead, he decided to respond. He stood on the porch of his house that was still ablaze and he said these words, He who lives by the sword will die by the sword. I want you to love your enemies. Be good to them. Love them. Let them know that you love them. For we are doing the right thing. We are doing what is just and God is with us. Historians tell us that upon hearing this, everybody started putting down their bats and their rifles. They held hands and they started singing a song. One of the white police officers who were there said, if it wasn't for that black pastor, we would have all been dead. You see, historians, they look back at that night and say, that was the turning point of the civil rights movement. They say that that was the day that they stopped and decided to not react to the violence that was done to them, but to respond, to respond with love. But you see, I disagree. I don't think history changed for the good on that night. I think it happened three nights ago when Dr. King was praying, when he realized that he no longer had to react, but to respond because he knew that he was no longer afraid. You see, prayer is a very, very important part of our faith. It's a very important part of turning this world into what God wants it to be. You see, when Paul the Apostle encourages the church to, to pray without ceasing, he's not saying, let's go out there and fold our hands and pray. He's saying that prayer is a lifestyle. We're continually in communion with God, and because of that, we're able to respond to certain things rather than to react. Jesus teaches his followers over and over again that instead of reacting, which is getting vengeance for the violence that's done against them, but he says, instead, we need to respond by forgiving. Have you noticed that in the Bible, Loving your neighbor is not a feeling. You see, when we think about love, we think about falling in love, like it's something that we don't have control over. In other words, it's a reaction. But in the Bible, it commands us to love, like it's supposed to be a response. You see, the kind of love that transforms a person, transforms a community, transforms a nation, is not the kind of love that we, we show when we feel like it. That's reaction. The kind of love that God has called us to show to the world is the kind that's not reactionary, but responsive. It defies the categories or fight, flight, or freeze. And all of that is rooted in our communion with God. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be talking about this. Pastor Stan and Pastor Lori, they're going to be teaching on what exercises and, and habits we could put in our lives that's going to help us become people who respond to matters rather than just react. So I highly encourage you to tune in every week and learn more and more about what kind of habits we could put in our lives that'll help us become people like Dr. King. Oh, and that night when the mob came to Dr. King's burning house and Dr. King stood on the porch and told everybody to love our enemies instead of vengeance to respond rather than react, they put down their rifles, they put down their baseball bats, they held each other's hands and they sang a song. Do you know what song they sang? It was Amazing Grace. It was a reminder to them how easily it is for us to get lost in our anger. But when we're lost in our anger, we can still be found. We can be blinded by the hatred around us, but we can still find a way to see. 
Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. So church, may we be reminded that no matter how lost, how blind we are, God didn't react. He responded to us by showing us grace.